0: Well, good evening, everybody. I trust you've been as blessed as I have to be here so far, um, hearing about the values of this upside-down kingdom that um, Jesus brought to this earth, um, turning back the curse that the first Adam uh, brought here. And uh, my topic for tonight um, is how God speaks through his word. And I'm going to focus mostly on um, how we hear God through his word. I mean, obviously, the book is a. I mean, we would all agree that God speaks through the Bible. Um, John Piper has a quote um, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. It's that simple. The Bible is God's word. We would all agree with that. Um, But I'm going to focus on um, the Bible, um, how we hear God speak through the Bible, but using it as a weapon. As a citizen of this um, upside down kingdom, um, we would call it a non-resistant kingdom, but yet we have weapons, not carnal ones, but mighty uh, ones, for pulling down strongholds. And how we equipped ourselves um, for the battle, the spiritual battles that we're in with the weapon that we have, is going to depend on how we hear God speak out of his word. <clears throat> um, Charles Spurgeon had a quote that the Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person that isn't. And I want to go along those lines tonight. Um, To be a real warrior in the kingdom of God, we will need to know what this book says. And we will need to know it from cover to cover. This is a book um, when it was uh, first in written form, uh, apparently by Moses. It meant just as much to those people as it can to us today. Um, The Israelites, when they heard uh, God speak from the mountain, they were terrified by it. And for us today, I wonder sometimes why we're not more terrified by what this book says and the way we live our lives, especially for us as having the Holy Spirit. We should have the eyes that see, right? And I think it is that real. If we would only see the spiritual battle that goes on around us. We would be terrified um, if we wouldn't know what this book means. Um, so this book has transcended it as time, the last 400, 4,500 years or more. Uh, 6,000 years since creation, obviously, um, that we've had the word of God. Um, it has transcended cultures, languages, and circumstances. And it has make, it impacted many tribes, nations, and peoples, likely billions of people. I mean, today there's billions of people on this earth, but obviously not all of them have the, language, or the Bible. But um, it has impacted billions of people uh, throughout time. And just as it had eternal value back in the time of the Israelites, it has eternal value to us today. And even for us here, here at Weaver Town, um, some of the grandparents here would remember of the early 1900s or middle 1900s, rather, um, where it was just simply a fight to survive. And you probably looked at your world that you had then differently than what the teenagers here today do, where their biggest problem might be that their battery died. But yet, this same book means a lot to each of us. Um, The Bible was given to fallible humans. by God. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of stories in here that, necessarily, that weren't necessarily spoken by God, but God gave um, mankind, or the, the scribes that wrote this, the inspiration to write it, and it means something to us today. Every, every story in here, from the most gruesome, uh, like the Benjamites being slaughtered by their tribe, by their fellow tribe members, to set a story of Ruth. It means something to us, somehow, somewhere. And it's been given uh, for humans that were created for his glory and for the purpose of glorifying God. And it was given through fallible humans. And that amazes me that God is not um, affected by our shortcomings. He's not limited by that. Um, Moses and David were both reprimanded by God for some sins they had. They had. And in uh, Jeremiah 15, Jeremiah has an interesting um, exchange with God and where Jeremiah is discouraged, uh, Jeremiah was one that God had told um, he was not supposed to marry, so he was uh, alone probably most of the time except for the scribe that he had. And um, he, he um, is discouraged here. In verse 10, he says, woe is me, and basically saying, woe that I was ever born. I wish I would never have been born. And this is a man that hears God speak. And in verse 18, he's speaking to God. as Why is my wound unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook? Like, water does that feel? That's a fairly broad accusation. It's basically, telling, it's telling God that he is not faithful to his prophet. And the Lord reprimanded him immediately. In verse 19, he says, If you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be my mouth. For Jeremiah to be the mouth of God... Um, it got discouraging for him at times, and it shows me that even though the Bible was given to fallible humans that struggled with their emotions, it is still a God, a mighty God that inspired it, that is going to, um, um, how should I say it, he's going to keep it in the way that he wants it. You know, today we think about translations, and the different translations that we have, some are a little bit off, and, but yet God is going to preserve his word. So how that looks for us today, I'm not always sure because there are some translations that are, um, I have serious issues with. And it has been sustained by fallible humans. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls found just 75 years ago were approximately 1,000 years older than what the um, Hebrew scholars had at that time, the manuscripts that the Hebrew scholars had at that time. And when they compared them, they were 95% word-to-word identical. And the manuscripts that these Hebrew scholars had were hand-copied down through the generations. God will sustain his word. He will preserve his word. So what do you suppose is the primary meaning of this word, of God giving his word to humans? What do you think the primary meaning was that God did that? Now, I'm sure there's a lot of secondary reasons, so I'm guessing you won't give me a wrong answer, but what was the primary meaning that God would give humans his word? And this is coming from me, so it's not, probably not something that you've read somewhere. For his glory. There is no other reason I don't believe that God, would, that God would give us his word if we weren't meant to glorify him. It is primarily and ultimately for his glory. It is not about me and what I can get out of it. You know, we can go to the Bible sometimes and treat it as a self-help book in a way, what I can get out of it. If we're feeling sad, we'll go to the Bible for comfort. But, you know, the God that gives us everything that we ask for, us as a simple man, is not holy God. We don't know what's best for us. So this is about, the Bible is about us, and by us glorifying God, it is about us submitting to and giving glory to an infinite creator that always was and always will be. And I like the analogy of the Bible being like a compass. Um, If you know how a compass works, it points to magnetic north no matter where you're at in the world. And the Bible is like that compass with Jesus being to where it points. No matter where you're at in the world, no matter what walk of life, the Bible has something for every person. From an aborigine in the Australian outback or the Amazon jungle to the richest person in Saudi Arabia or here in America. It can reach those people and it can mean something to each one of them. So, our trajectory matters. You know, we're just one degree off from following this compass. And an actual compass, if you're one degree off, in 60 miles, you're a mile off your, off your target. Our trajectory matters. But there again, the Bible is capable of correcting us. So, Jesus is, God. Jesus is the pinnacle of the Bible. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And he might not be the focal point of every story in here, but he is the one that every story, I believe, points to. If it's about the depravity of man, it is just showing that we need a Savior. So, what I want to do here tonight is to just simply encourage and challenge you um, to make the study of God's Word and to hear how He speaks to you a top priority in your life. Because the battle that we're in, we're going to need this weapon. And not just for the saving of our own souls, but to do what God commands us, to reach the people around us. Because I believe we are very easily passive in our culture here today. Um, We can so easily just go around about our everyday life and forget about what our true purpose as Christians here on Life is. It's not about to make it good for us, like we heard. We are not home yet. It's not about what we can do for ourselves in our life, but what we can do for others. And we're going to need what this. We're going to need to know what this book says in order to have that heart of compassion that God wants to give us. Uh, turn your Bibles to Revelation two. Uh, this is the letters um, that Jesus uh, had for the churches. And I'm sure you've you've all done this already, Um, compare our nation, our culture, to some of these letters. And Revelation 2, starting in verse 12, um, this is to the angel of the church of Pergamum. And he says, write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so, they might, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have those who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'm going to stop there. Um, we have the imagery here of um, Jesus having a sharp two-edged sword. And from Hebrews 4, we know what that is, the word of God, the word that we have here. And um, talking about uh, their situation that the church had there, they're holding fast to his name did not deny his faith, but he had a few things against them. They ate food, sacrificed to idols, and they practiced sexual immorality. Now, we know from some of the early Christian writings that the Nicolaitans were... Um, kind of a Christian off-branch, a Christian sect that um, were known for their lust, their covetousness, and their luxury. And he is basically condemning those that hold to the teachings of that and telling them they need to repent. And if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of his mouth, with his word. And I wonder how he was intending on doing that. We never have any indication that Jesus came back and spoke more revelation. So how did he war against them? with the sword of his mouth. Probably literally through the revelations that the people already had, the written word, and he did it through his people. So I want, I want to just put this forward to you as a challenge, um, that we need to go to the Bible, do what it says, and then use the Bible to further the kingdom of God. Um every boy probably knows the story of David and how that probably looked so great, how David could be a shepherd boy and then go and kill Goliath, you know we have that opportunity today in a spiritual sense, and our weapons if okay, so if David was a shepherd boy, he's protecting his sheep as we know he did, from lions, bears whatnot at all he was fairly uh, fairly good with his weapons that he had sword, slingshot, whatever it may be um, but for us today we're a part of the kingdom and we're a warrior in the kingdom, but yet we are very passive about what for weapons we use. we almost act like we're not in a, in, a, in a spiritual warfare. So in other words, we're passive citizens. And if you get the picture of a church um, as an army, look, view the pastors as generals. They're the ones that are training, directing, encouraging, admonishing. And then us laymen are the ones that are in the trenches. We're in the foxholes. We're, fi- we're, we're fighting this fight but we've been trained. We have the weapon. We should be trained. And this isn't a battle that will get any um, or shouldn't bring any honor and glory to us. I think any army soldier in a foxhole um, is not thinking about the glory and honor that he's going to get at home when he gets home. He's just simply thinking about the fact that he wants to get home. And I think that's how we need to be, not thinking about um, what kind of honor and glory we can get from fighting in this battle. So that means, how do we do our mission work? What kind of mindset do we have as we go about that? You know, this is not necessarily being out um, and work boys camp, where, where you might be uh, fighting this battle. But it's simply sharing your faith with the people that are probably in your life already being open about your faith being vulnerable with him but not naive and not being afraid to get um, into uncomfortable situations and this takes discretion and it take and you've learned this discretion by training yourself in this word so why study the word it's probably as simple as the heart cannot love what the mind does not know for us to know and to love God we need to know what he says It is hard to have wisdom without knowledge. Um, James 3, talking about wisdom, two kinds of wisdom, and this is out of the NIV, says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. You know, we don't naturally gain wisdom. We must seek it. And according to James, we must ask for it and ask for it in faith. So our mindset and our motive for reading God's word will likely determine what we're going to get out of it. You know, we're prone to bring our biases and our worldviews, our personal mindset, from our background and life experiences. And in a sense, that's okay, but we need to be aware of that. But we're quick to justify our lifestyle by cherry-picking out of the Scripture. You can make the Scriptures say what you want them to say if you go that route. And when when Virgil asked me to speak on this topic, I didn't realize how close home this was going to hit because uh, my personal background, for those of you who don't know, I grew up in the Old Order Church. And I probably knew my Bible a lot better than most teenagers in that setting. I was born again um, at the age of 17 at a drunken party, but did not know my Bible um, compared to you people here. Very little. Never was it a Bible study. I heard the word preached every two years. Um, But the Bible to me, um, or every two weeks, sorry, I said every two years, um, but the Bible, to me, was a mystery for the, most, for the most part. And when I started reading it after I was born again, there was a fascination there that I had with it. But it gave me a headache, especially the Old Testament gave me a headache because I was looking through it with the mindset of my circumstances and uh, my background in the church. And I literally could not comprehend it um, to the extent that I knew God wanted me to I knew that God did not intend for his word to be a burden to the people that are reading it. I had that in my mind. And yet, for me, I had nobody to go to as far as to help study it. So I'm going to go through a couple of different approaches that um, a lot of people take in studying the Bible. And my goal here is simply to push us towards his 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 full word, not just picking out of it what we want to get out of it and avoiding the subjects that we don't like, but taking the Bible from cover to cover and uh, trying to make something of it. The best thing that I did um, to get to know what the Bible is saying is um, I bought a chronological Bible with no commentary. It was just the straight up of the Bible. And I remember praying to God before I started in the first of the year, January the 1st, like, God, I want to see um, your word through how you meant it to be seen. And hear you speak through it how you meant to be heard. And he answered that prayer. Some of my favorite books of the Bible are actually in the Old Testament now. The very books that gave me a headache before. Because in Isaiah, every time there's a judgment pronounced, there's mercy, usually immediately after. And the mercy part of that, I could not comprehend before, but then I could. So a couple different approaches that people take um, in studying the Bible. Um, The magic eight ball approach. And my goal for this is just simply to get us into the word more and uh, get into the word knowing that it's God's word and see what we can get out of it for the purpose of furthering God's kingdom. So the magic Magi eight ball approach is approaching the Bible for specific answers. You know, what, uh, what occupation should I pursue? Where should I live? You know, what church should I attend? And so forth. You know, you close your eyes, you flip open your Bible and you kind of lay your finger on the page and see if that gives you an answer. And I'm guessing there's probably not many people here that do it, but you'd be surprised how much it happens in our Christian circles today, in the evangelical circles, I should say. So what this approach does is it, it demands that the Bible tell us what we do rather than who to be. The Bible is a book about who we should be, not about what we should do. I mean, it, it does tell us what we should do, don't get me wrong, but it first tells us who to be. So this is basically using um, God's Word as Divination which is a demonic power according to Acts 16. Another approach is a, um, a, ha- a haphazard approach to the Bible study. Without any deliberate thought on where to read or where to study, you know, we'll just tend to read whatever passage that the Bible falls to or whatever passage we kind of have in the back of our mind that we want to read. And we'll read as much as our time allows. You know, If you're trusting the Holy Spirit to lead you through life, why can't the Holy Spirit lead you to read something in the Bible that he wants you to get, right? So it doesn't sound like a bad approach. You know. Surely it can direct you in the reading of God's word. But for somebody um, that does not have any um, cultural or historical context, um, doesn't know about the authorship or the original intent of the passage, he's going to get a misleading representation of what that passage is actually saying. And here I'm going to do a little quiz for you. Um, and you should probably know these verses. Where is this verse from? I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Marlon, you know where that verse is from? Is this in a positive or negative sense? Do you know the context? The Song of Solomon is a love story, right? So that's in a positive sense. Like We know that context, and it is in a positive sense. This lady is in love. And what about this one? Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Where is that one from? Do you know the context behind that one? Is that a positive or negative sense? That's a curse, isn't it? That word desire that both of those ladies were supposed to have or should have is the exact same Greek word, has the same uh, Hebrew root, I should say. The context before and after that verse tell us more than what that actual word does. Context matters. So for you to get anything out of the Bible, you will have to know what the context is. You know, that being the curse, um, her desire is for her husband. What's wrong with that? You know, I'm not going to give um, a lot of uh, interpretation here, but that is basically saying that her desire is going to be to find fulfillment from a man versus Jesus Christ. They had a broken relationship. And then rather going to God for her fulfillment, she's going to man, going to her husband. And for her husband to rule over her is not headship. That is simply him using her, pursuing her body versus her soul. And in a sense, um, there are... Trying to get fulfillment from each other that they should only be getting from God. So, my whole point with that is that context matters. Be deliberate about why you study, your, what you study in your Bible, where you go. Study books at a time, or start at the front of the Bible and work your whole way through slowly and deliberately. The arm, armchair quarterback approach um, this basically means that you read books, you watch shows, and you listen to podcasts about God rather than actually reading the actual Bible. So, if you're better at knowing what John MacArthur said about a certain, a, certain, a certain subject versus knowing what the Bible says, or if a lot of your biblical knowledge comes from the chosen, you're probably closer to being a sports center sports critic than you are a genuine seeker. You now, we're called to love the Lord our God with our own mind, not with not some author or movie director's mind. So, if you're serious about being a Christian. Get in the game. We're not supposed to just sit back and uh, be a critic about what people say about God. We're actually supposed to read and know what the, um, what the Bible says about God. Another approach of Bible study is uh, the picky eater approach. And this is where we pick and choose our favorite books and stories of the Bible. You know, we can read most of the New Testament You know, those that uh, make us comfortable, and we'll leave out those that make us uncomfortable. Then in the Old Testament, we'll go to the poetry books, but a lot of the rest we'll just leave unread. We might know what they say, but we won't study. But Scripture says all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us, not just our favorites. You know, the plan of salvation, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom... Is that becomes all the more precious if you see the righteous wrath and the depravity of man in the Old Testament. To know that you need a Savior is to know that you're a sinner. And we need to have both. We need to know we're a sinner before we know we need a Savior. Uh, the topical study approach, and here is where you can pick any subject um, that's pertinent to you, and you search that theme, theme and read just the verses that pertain to that topic. So if you're feeling like your heart needs to pick me up, put that in your search bar. And Psalm 37.4 might come up. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Sounds good. You can walk away feeling happy. But you might also come to Jeremiah 17.9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? And what I'm saying here basically is we need to have a holistic approach to how we view the Bible. Not just what makes us feel good. We need, to, we need to see us as God sees us. So there's no shortcut in knowing the nature of God and to hear him speak through his word other than the fact that you simply need to read it yourself and read it in its complete format. And seek to find God's purpose in inspiring every verse and in every chapter. It's there for a reason but this is probably a goal that you won't reach in your lifetime. But we still need to pursue this. Um, in Hebrews, uh, the writer there is adamantly making his point that Jesus Christ supersedes Moses and the law. And um, he's, he's uh, writing to people that were apparently debating returning to the law. And he's rebuking them. And in the chapter... Um, in chapter 5, he's making a case for, uh, case for Jesus being our great high priest. He's frustrated with him, and this is what he says. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become hard of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have powers, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, to distinguish good from evil. And this kind of convicts me because I myself am pretty quick to go to the commentary if there's a difficult passage that I don't understand, rather than letting Scripture interpret Scripture and using references um, to go back and forth through God's Word to see what it means. So, and I'm probably preaching in the choir here, but this, is, this was kind of my approach in my early days. I know very well what this is like. So rather than approaching our daily devotions like it's a debit card, where we pull just enough out for that day, and then we go through that day, and the next day we need to fill ourselves up again, why not look at, look at it more like it's a savings account, where we're studying God's Word, knowing that there'll probably be troubles in five to ten years, and in that moment we know what God's Word says, and we can fall back on it. Um, about how we approach scripture then after uh, we've been studying it, um, it's easy to rationalize or spiritualize um, our uh, obedience and our actions. And in First Samuel 13, uh, this is when Saul is king. And I just want to bring out the fact um, of how we can do that. Um, the first story is, is uh, the one where he was waiting for Samuel to come to him so he can make a burnt offering because the Philistines were coming against them. And he waited seven days for Samuel to come. And Saul, um, Saul's men began to scatter. So Saul himself said, "Bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings." And as Saul offered the burnt offerings, and Saul offered the burnt offering, and just as he finished making the offerings, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. "What have you done, asked Samuel?" Saul replied, "When I saw that the men were scattering and you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Mitzmash." I thought, now the Philistines will come down against us, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel tells him, you have done a foolish thing. He's rationalizing his disobedience by putting logic and reason to it. This is what looks good, or what looked good to the human mind, rather than having faith in what God said. And that, we're quick to do that. We are very quick to do that. And in uh, 1 Samuel 15... Now, this is where Saul was commanded um, to completely um, wipe out the Amalekites. Uh, As we know the story, um, they spared the the king and the the sheep and the cattle. And when Samuel confronted him about it, uh, listen to what Saul said. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied, Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, you did not become the head, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people. The Amalekites wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said, I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed them and brought back Agag their king. And the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the the Lord your God. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. Um, Spiritualizing scripture to make it say um, what we want it to say rather than actually just literally obeying it, is very easy for us. And I know we, uh, uh, our, um, what we call our Anabaptist hermeneutic, the way we interpret scripture, is literal. Um, but I want to challenge us to how we actually live that out. Um, none of us live out the command to the rich young ruler. Do we need to? And I'm bringing this out to the fact that how do we study the Bible? Do we actually know why we don't live that literally? And do we have an excuse of why we don't? Another thing about studying the scripture, and I need to close here, is um, translations. Uh, words change meaning. And some words um, uh, change their meaning in the sense that we don't know the original Hebrew um, meaning behind it simply because we don't know the emotion behind the word um, for those with Dutch background for instance um, to say that our dog died and our uncle died the word died is the same word in English but in Dutch we use our dog is and our uncle is we would never think of switching those two it would be sacrilegious to switch those two And in much the same way, we don't get the full comprehension of the original language um, from our English language. Another reason to study the Bible, what it means. And two words um, that I want to bring out here quick, um, that we make little of, is the word repent and the word Lord. The word repent literally means taking a 180 degree turn from where you're at. In the Old Testament, it was more in action. And in the New Testament, it was in in your way of thinking. So the word repent carries a lot more weight than what we give it in our English language. And the word Lord, it's easy to confess Jesus as Lord, but do we know what we're actually saying? We're actually saying that he is the supreme authority of our life, that it's no longer my life, but it's his. That he has the ultimate say with what I do. And that gives us a quite a bit different feel than what the evangelical circles would say, you accept Christ as your Savior. Yes, we need a Savior, but we also need to realize that he's our Lord. You know, it's an oxymoron to say, no, Lord. You can say, yes, Lord, but you cannot say, no, Lord, because then he's no longer your Lord. So to finish off here, um, you probably heard me say a lot here um, that knowledge is important for our relationship with God, but Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees, the people that might have translated or um, Copied our Bible for us and passed it on to us. They were well versed and educated. And he told them that the prostitutes and tax collectors, the low life, are getting into the kingdom of heaven before they are. These prostitutes and tax collectors are uneducated, they're illiterate. And they were still going into the kingdom of heaven before those that knew the word of God inside and out. The way we approach God is not just about knowledge. We need to come to it knowing, for what, knowing it for what it is and having faith in it that it is a true word of God. That he has spoken from his prophets and from his son and today and, he, and today, it's from his written word. So don't just revere the word of God. Read it. But don't just read the word of God revere it. Because it is what we need to save us in this life. And it's also our weapon to show other people how they must be saved. Shall we stand? I'll dismiss us with a word of prayer.